I'm getting married in the morning. I'm um, also getting married in the morning. This is a Fred the Alien Productions team special. I'm at Ashley Hall, and I'm here with writer-director Wayne Stellini. Hello. And actor-producer Philip Hunting. G'day. Wayne. Yes, Ash. How did this play come to be? How, what was your inspiration? And yeah, yeah, just talk a little bit about that. So this show, Michael and Philip are getting married in the morning, came to me pretty much by accident. I was producing Fred the Alien's theatrical debut of the writer in 2016. And as a producer, I was compiling actors' headshots, and one of our actors, Michael R. Lister, didn't have a colour headshot. So, giving me a lot of work one night, <laughs> I was looking through his Facebook page for an appropriate photo of him in colour. Yeah. I couldn't find one, but what I did come across was a photo of Michael at his wedding. And ah. sitting, yeah, sitting beside him was his best man, Philip Hunting, <laughs> and they were saluting the camera. It was a beautiful shot. And when I saw the photo, I immediately said to myself, Michael and Philip are getting married in the morning. And then I thought, ooh, that sounds like a fun premise for a show, exploring marriage equality, which wasn't a thing and really wasn't on the table for Australian mm, society yes, and politics. Time, no. Yeah, so it wasn't even really about trying to be topical or political. I mean, the discourse around marriage equality was there, but I thought well, why don't we just present a show where it is a reality and that could just be fun to do. So that is the genesis of Michael and Philip are getting married in the morning and the two characters are named after Fred Heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, would you like to speak to me about the writing process of this? Like, how easy or hard was it to write? Where were you drawing inspiration from? Um, yeah, what was your vision that you... And did your vision come to be in the final performance? Yeah, well, the idea was that I wanted it to be a lot of fun. So the initial idea was that it would be a comedy of errors. Everything leading up to the wedding and the boys overcoming roadblocks to make it to the altar. And so I was really just drawing upon funny things that I had either experienced or thought about or had heard stories of, or had even really seen. The play itself has a lot of pop culture references in terms of different media and things that are happening in real life. Indeed it does. Yeah, it's... and it wasn't too long after my sister had actually got married herself, so it was nice to sort of experience that. There is a line in the play where Tally says to Michael, you know, we've all suffered because of the big deal you've made about these nuptials. <laughs> and I think anyone who is related to a bride <laughs> can sympathise with that. So it really was just a process of who are these characters? You know, what do they want to achieve throughout the play? What's going to stop them achieving that? What are they afraid of? And it happened quite organically. One of the motivators for me in writing it was I wanted to work with particular actors again that I had worked with in the writer. So Michael, for me, was always going to be a brilliant actor called David McNamara. I had him in my head and I thought, well, David is phenomenal. He can really do anything. So that meant that I could delve into Michael and I could go really dark and deep because I knew I would have an actor, had he agreed to it, that could achieve all of those things. Okay. Yeah. It was similar with Philip. Philip was written for another wonderful actor who was unavailable at the time, but still getting that inspiration, thinking, okay, this person is quite good at comedy, and that's why Philip has more of the comical moments. 
Similarly, Tally was written for Anna Reardon, who ended up taking the role as well. And the wonderful thing about Anna is she is fearless. She will go wherever you want the character to go. And when you have an actor in mind who can do that, you're like, well, I'm not restricted by anything. Now, this is taking for granted that these actors will all agree. But when you reach the stage of a final script, whether they agree or not doesn't matter. Your inspiration is there. And then the characters just feed off one another as well. Mm. Yeah. And Wayne, how did you choose who could be in the play? Like, How did you cast this play? Yeah, so I think it helped having an idea who you wanted to be in the play. I did write my wish list of who I wanted to play which character. All good directors do that. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny Depp wasn't available. No, he wasn't, unfortunately. Um, he loved the script but said, I can't bring my dogs over so I can't do it. <laughs> so yeah, so we, we, we had to pass on that one. But yeah, like again, you have an idea of which actors you want to cast and you write a role that you fits in with their capabilities or that you actually feel will challenge them because I think if a role isn't going to challenge you, what's the point? So it was great, yeah. So David McNamara had said yes, fantastic. He was the first person I showed the script to outside of Fred. Anna also said yes, she loved the character. Then we had the people who actually do work within Fred quite regularly. So from the get-go, I knew that Philip would be playing our priest because it was a minor role in the play, but he would be very hands-on throughout. And any excuse to get Philip hunting acting is a good excuse in my book. He doesn't do it enough. So I'm like, (laughs) if I give him a small role, he can't say no to it. And he didn't, thankfully, and did a great job there as well, (laughs) Philip. And, you know, Ben Campbell had wanted to be in the writer our previous show, but couldn't because of other commitments. And so I always had Ben in mind for Blaine, the brother, because Ben is quite cheeky and so is Blaine. And I thought that would be fun for Ben to do and it would be quite challenging. And Ben's just super enthusiastic about everything. Mm. Some of the more challenging elements about Blaine, I knew that Ben would do. And the bride, I had Bethany in mind for that because, again, she had worked on stage with us before and has done other projects Everyone else we just put out a casting call for. We did still put out a casting call for Tally. I'd got to see an incredible amount of very talented young women mm. for Tally. It was absolutely amazing. So many that we were just keeping on the books mm. that we hope we can work with in the future. Yeah. But that was also a really good safeguard as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is something that Philip really encouraged me to do. So it was good having those ideas bounced off to say, well, you do want to safeguard because even though these young ladies have said yes, if you're not auditioning any women, you have to start from scratch. Mm. Um, Yeah. So... So you had kind of understudies in mind. Kind of. In mind, yeah. So we had people who we go, okay, if for whatever reason Anna or Bethany couldn't Mm. do it, these women are talented enough that we could then call upon them to say, hey, this role is available or hey, come chat to us they were very enthusiastic about tally and i think with the sample script that we gave them that really excited them about tally some of them gave feedback that the scene that we had given them was a great insight into tally and the pace and the energy of the story so that was good to get that feedback as well casting philip was incredibly important and we saw a lot of wonderful young men for philip but at the end of the day it was ryan stewart who stood out He had strong competition with a young actor called Bane Bradshaw, who auditioned for the role of Philip. And I lost sleep over this because both were extraordinarily strong. Mm. But it was a final audition and an improvisation exercise where Ryan just really nailed it and had all of these wonderful characteristics that you go, yep, that's what Philip would do. And so Ryan was cast, was very happy with it. As for Graham, Jeffrey Bryant-Jones just smashed it. There was no competition. Mm. You know, the other actors that we auditioned 
were strong, but he just smashed it out of the park. Wouldn't yeah. you agree, Philip? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, he ha- he didn't just have the talent, but he also had a look yeah. that I think was perfect for what we needed. Yeah, and we actually get to see it in the show as well. Mm. In terms of especially when Graham is reacting to Michael's, you know, numbers monologue as we call it, where we're recounting this really mm. violent history between the two. Some heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah, and Jeffrey presents a real subtlety yeah. to that response, and you feel that it's affecting him. But in saying that, when he needs to go quite emotional and sentimental, he does that quite yeah. beautifully. Yes, he does. Yeah, very sympathetic. But then also there are moments when the two are fighting and there's intensity, and he does that beautifully as well. Mm. So he's a very well-rounded actor. As Philip had said, you know, had the look, really had the talent, had the range for it as well. And Jeffrey really enjoyed that process because he isn't on stage as much as the others, but he really worked hard to make sure that when he was on stage, he was on stage. He was on stage. Yeah. Yes. When it came to... Um, Spectacular after... performance by him. Yeah, I think so too. I think yeah. our audience has really responded to that. We had quite a bit of problem casting Simon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We narrowed it down to two actors and both then couldn't do it because of the rehearsal schedule, unfortunately. Okay. But I really loved Bain Bradshaw so much that I actually offered him Simon. <laughs> and um, he couldn't do it because he had committed elsewhere. And I said, can we just be in touch down the track if something comes up? And he goes, yes. When we were going into Melbourne Fringe, we were still struggling with our Simon. And so we ended up having to put a fresh casting call out for Simon. Got a much better, more narrowed in response. People applying were really strong. We had one day of auditions, Philip. Yeah. And our last actor was really good. Yeah. A really good bloke and had the great look for it. Just, I think, really connected with Simon, actually. Yeah, did a really good job. We had one actor who was supposed to come to that audition, but had contacted me, said couldn't make it. I said, look, we'll reschedule it. We can do it on this, you know, Wednesday night at like 6 p.m. And he was like, yep. I said, cool. Which was was funny because Wayne and I had already decided on this other bloke. Yeah, this... Other, Until. Yeah, this other gentleman was fantastic. And I said, look, we'll see this guy anyway because he's, you know, wants to really audition for it and is coming from another shoot. We understand that. Yeah. The Fred team had met together because we have our meetings on this one night. I said he can come in after the meeting. The Fred team can see his audition. He's taking a while because he's coming from a job. He's getting a bit lost. Traffic is horrible. <laughs> and as we've all experienced going to a job interview, naturally. Yep, yes. Um, but he was as keen as mustard. And the team was starting to get a little bit tired. It had been a long day. So one by one, dispersing. And then this got... It's nine o'clock at night at this point, isn't it? I think it actually ended up being eight o'clock. Yeah, eight o'clock. <laughs> that yeah. he ended up coming in. And um, Philip and Bethany were just leaving. Met him briefly. Ben stayed with me. All of the rooms that we could have used were all closed. Um, We were at a university campus, so we were sitting in a cafe. The cleaners were vacuuming and sweeping and mopping (laughs) in this cafe. And this young man named Hayden Gridley rocked up and Ben and I took him aside in a little booth and we started having a chat and I said, you know, this might be the strangest place you've ever had to audition. (laughs) And I think he had said that it would probably be his second strangest place. (laughs) But before Hayden got underway, I had said to the Fred team, I said, for this guy's sake... I hope he's good. (laughs) Because again, we had essentially already cast Simon. Yeah. So this guy just needed to be exceptional. And Hayden did his audition, had a chat, was talking through scenes with him. He asked about the psychology of Simon, the dynamics between Simon and Tally, and essentially was preempting everything before I had said it. And he was phenomenal Mm. in it. And 
aesthetics are important to Simon because he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. And, you know, we looked at Hayden's aesthetics and he just did such a great job. Hilarious. Yeah, a great job. But essentially his interview went for, an audition went for an hour and a half, I think it was. We ended up finishing up at about 9.30. And then when... It was a long audition. Yeah, it was the longest single audition. Maybe the second would have been Ryan's, but Ryan did have two auditions Mm. for Philip. Yeah, had a second round audition. But for a single audition, um, Hayden would have had to have the longest... But it was difficult to let him go. The time flew. Just the discussions, running through scenes, and the things that he was putting out there as well. By the time we had finished and Ben and I were having a chat, I'm like, Ben, I think I'm going to lose sleep again. Mm -hmm. But really, about 10 minutes later, I go, no, I think this is the guy. You know, he's just kind of amazing. And the Fred team members were asking me about how did the audition go? And I said, look, one word, flawless. And he really was perfect. There was not a single flaw in his audition, which is great because there was not a single flaw in his performance in Mm. the end. Mm. Yeah, it was incredible. And then when I called Hayden a few days later, I had said to him, I go, do you mind if we give you more stage time? Your audition was so good. I want more of you on stage. And that is how he ended up getting his rubber ducky solo. (laughs) (laughs) So it was an idea that that Simon would come out with a rubber ducky because I thought that was funny since rubber ducks are usually in bathtubs, not showers. And I knew that Hayden could sing. I never made that connection. And you didn't? Oh my goodness, my mind is blown. How much of an idiot is this man? Yeah, that was the idea. He comes up with a shower cap and and a rubber duck. Yeah, knowing that Hayden come from a musical background, he could sing. So I had this idea and I thought, well, I'm going to give him more more stage time. And again, boasting where you've got, you have an idea who you're going to cast, you give them as much stage time as you can because you know they can do all of these wonderful things, whereas somebody else who you've got no idea who you're going to cast really. And so you give them what they just need to be. But when an actor inspires you like how Hayden does and has you just want more of them. And he was always switched on. We said, Hayden is always present. You just don't sit there. You're always active in the scene. And he just did that so beautifully, I thought. Yeah. yeah. So, so would you say that towards the end, Hayden became Simon? Or did Simon become Hayden? Well, one thing that Hayden had told me in his audition was that there wasn't much difference between Simon and himself. <laughs> and I just thought, oh yeah, go on, sell it more. And getting to know Hayden, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, uh, yeah, whereas Simon is kind of always just floating in his own world. Hayden is a lot more intelligent, a lot more switched on. um, But Hayden does have some doozies. Mm -hmm. I think like Simon, he's just a um, lovable guy who's just really sweet, good-natured, with good (laughs) intentions. (laughs) And just like Simon, they both love to eat a lot. (laughs) But I'd like to think that Hayden, as with all the actors as well, uh, found a connection with their characters and will be a highlight on their resume, I hope. Now, on to the Melbourne Fringe performance. This is where you come in, Phil. Mm. Yay. How well, would you say that that run went? From an actor's and a producer's point of view, sure. would you say that that run went well, bad? How, how would you speak about it? Look, I, I feel that the run itself went really well. From a producer's point of view, producing is always tough. It was actually the first show that I've produced for Fred. The writer beforehand, I was uh, directing. I did a tiny bit of production work, but nothing to the point that 
I'd made a comment to Wayne during, or even just before the writer, yeah, um, trying to sell him the idea of producing the show, and I said, "Oh, it's easy. <laughs> producing's the easiest job. That's one of the easier ones to do. It's nothing like directing. Nothing like yeah. I ate my words, my hat, my shoe, my <laughs> <Yeah>. shirt." <laughs> The whole kit and caboodle. Well, I wouldn't after. let you forget it, would I? Felt, no, that's it. <laughs> again, I had never produced before and was just like, I'm making this up as I go along and just taking Philip's advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, look, it was a lot tougher. It is a tough gig to do, but definitely a rewarding gig. Yeah, I would say that. So, my intention wasn't to actually produce Michael and Philip either, but obviously needing to support... Philip and Fulia, mm, who mm. produced it. And I'm glad I produced it as well, because it's nice to still get insight into your baby. Mm. <laughs> and being a small company like we are, people need to be able to fulfill multiple roles, even if they're not initially tasked to do so. Yeah. So, I mean, like Philip as well, you not only produced um, your assistant directing as well, yeah. you're performing as yep. the priest, affectionately called within Freda's father, Rob. Um, you were also stagehand yeah. at the time. So you were ticking a lot of boxes yourself. Yeah, most certainly. And um, so, yeah, from a production point of view, it was really fun to learn and actually personally experience what needs to be done to put on a show. Help you in the future, I'm sure. Oh, most certainly, yes, yes. most certainly. And I think the Melbourne Fringe run... In the long run, was probably easier on um, production value itself. Yeah. We worked through Gasworks, which are an amazing uh, company. Yeah. And they've got a lot of the foundation already there. Whereas yeah. in the Midsummer run, it was very much, whilst Bluestone is a beautiful venue, it is very tech light. Yes. Um, two, you could almost say non-existent outside mm. of you know, house lights. Yeah. Yes. Which again, just is another challenge. It's not a negative, it's a different challenge. So whilst there's probably less paperwork, less emails, less organisation, yeah. there was a lot more hands-on. We need tech, we need to work out the bar, we need to yeah. work out all this other sort of more hands on stuff. And I think looking back, I'm glad that we had to do it that way mm. because it's easy, I think, to take a second run of a show for granted when most you've certainly. got most people returning and doing the same roles. Mm. So you don't really want to slide through it. You know, I can guarantee you, Philip and I were not loving the challenges at the time. <laughs> they were really intense and quick learning curves. But yeah. I think Philip and I and a lot of people at Fred as well tend to learn better when you're just thrown in the deep end and most it's a certainly. sink or swim. And because we've got the commitment to do our best and to learn and are not afraid of making mistakes and seeing opportunities and things like that, we tend to swim. Yeah. You know, yeah. whether it's an amazing swim, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, our head's above water. That's it. The focus is still where it needs to be yeah, yeah. to pull it all together. Yeah. And, yeah. I'd say from an acting perspective... Yes. It's probably a little harder for me to give a full evaluation because quite often, and hmm, for better or worse, quite often at rehearsals I'd find myself chatting with Fulia over production stuff, especially during Fringe. Yeah. The production side of things was so heavy that quite often I ended up neglecting my performance role. Now, I was possibly in more of a... Because... Father Rob was a much smaller mm. role, and not to say, you know, there's no such thing as small roles, just small actors, but <laughs> not to say that, you know, it was insignificant, but it, I did feel having so many roles to work on, I did find that, 
rehearsals almost came second for me, which I do feel could could have been detrimental to my fellow actors. So in hindsight, that might have been something I'd like to. Yeah, I think there's always a risk when you do that. Mm. I mean, I myself, and you know, we've talked about this as well about you know how much did producing impact on my ability to direct Mm. you know i marketed for melbourne fringe but was more of a support in terms of marketing for midsummer but still your attention also needs to be there so as a first time director and it probably showed and that's okay Mm. but was it beneficial for you in the overall show to still do these multiple roles or would it have been better to have focused on one but then if you're focusing on one role such as directing are you neglecting giving other people the opportunity to learn from your experiences yeah. as a producer? So Fred the Alien has a very heavy learning culture about mm. teaching one another and learning from other people and encouraging people who want to come in to experience new things, teaching them and sharing experiences as well. So that is the culture that anyone who works with Fred finds themselves in, whether they enter yes. that knowing it or not. Mm. is another thing but it has to be a supportive culture we are a company we are an art collective Mm. if we're not here to challenge our own skills and our perceptions and what we want to do and need to do what are we doing it for Mm. i mean we're we're telling the stories we want to tell that's exactly right like um the the whole learning thing i had to learn how to do tech in under a week or or just over a week sorry no actually ash let's put let's be honest you and michael r lister who are at the tech desk had two days (laughs) you know yeah i mean yes yeah the tech was around you a lot earlier and you got to play but essentially in the context of the play itself you had two days yeah Yeah. and everybody was very helpful yeah i will say yeah so how did you find um because you were responsible for the audio so the sound tech yes the play itself doesn't have a lot of sound but it's still an important part otherwise why would we have it yeah especially in act three which is what everyone is holding out for and wanting to see so those wedding bells are very important you know the the wedding time the march all of that is important that was down to you no pressure (laughs) (laughs) you know but i mean how did you find yourself teching and supporting michael who was also doing the lights there because you helped set up the lights and lighting up the cast I found that it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be when I stepped into it. Yeah. Especially the lights. Like, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Even though I didn't... Yes, I was the sound guy, not the lights guy. Yeah, as I was saying, everybody around me was very positive, and if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have been able to. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I'm, I'm, yeah. and that's always good feedback to hear, because again, that's the culture we try to enforce. Mm. And that also became really important for the Midsummer run, yeah. because the crew was returning, mm-hmm. and we got additional crew, which was fantastic. Yes. The cast was returning, except mm-hmm. for one. So David McNamara couldn't return for Midsummer because he was committed elsewhere. So we needed a Michael. And the first person I thought of was... A young man who had auditioned for Philip was offered Simon. (laughs) And so Bane Bradshaw got the call. Again, Fred really loved this guy in the auditions. Like everyone absolutely loved him. Um, Philip and I were just like, this guy's energy, his attitude just to auditions is incredible. Ben had immediate rapport with him. Mm. And just, you know, er he got along with everyone so well. And I'm like... Michael. (laughs) And I called him. It was a surprise call for him to hear from us. And was like, I just need to check my schedule. 
And so for me, it was a nervous wait. Yeah. So the tables had turned and he said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And there was no need to audition him for Michael to read for Michael because mm. we had seen the stuff that he could do and how adaptable he is and how well he takes direction. Yeah. And when he took it, we were just extraordinarily happy. So Bain was sitting in the front row on the opening of Michael and Philip Ray getting married in the morning and said that he just loved the play even more so and was really excited to be a part of it. So he went home, learnt the script, and we ended up doing some catch-up rehearsals. So just he and I, Philip joined as well, mm. just to get him up to speed, and he was pretty much off book as well. So his commitment to the show, to the role, was just absolutely heartwarming. Phenomenal. Yeah, just really dove into it. When he came over for his first rehearsal, he was like, I have some questions. I was like, yep, go for it. And he opens up his laptop and he's essentially written a dossier <laughs> <laughs> on the role of Michael and the show. And I was like, wow. And you just automatically, you know, you've cast the right person yeah. when they're that much in love with the show and the character. And that enthusiasm showed, I think. He Most certainly. Was just always trying and just never gave up and just really wanted to make it the best performance he could incredible work ethic from Bane. We can't speak highly enough mm. uh, of him and are eternally grateful as well that he said yes because it meant we didn't have to put another advert out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and go through casting call. And go through the whole process. Shebang again. Yeah, go yep. through the whole process again. On Bane, I just want to say how hard he worked on his monologue, his numbers monologue as we call it. Mm. He's used it in his show reel, which was again quite flattering, but it showed how much he loved it. Because of Bane's new energy and his ability to get along with everyone and everyone else sort of having their own fresh takes on their characters and were happy to play with some improv and things, the show felt fresh again. Yeah. So as a whole, would you say Fringe or Midsummer was a better run? Oh, it's apples and oranges, yeah. Ash. Yeah. Both had pros and cons because yeah. both offered new challenges and new experiences as well. You know, I think the experiences overall were about the same. Yeah. But for me, I can only draw positives from them. Yeah. I really like... There were wonderful opportunities to learn and we've learned. And the cast and crew were just phenomenally hardworking and committed and delivered great performances, delivered great crew work as well. Mm. Yeah, Philip, what do you think? Yeah, so for me, same sentiment that mm. they're too similar, too many pros and cons that balance each other out. For example, for me, the Midsummer audience was actually a better audience overall. It was more suited for that demographic yes. than a fringe audience. However, the infrastructure of Gasworks to me, made a lot of the, for example, the tech, the the front of house, etc. Just yeah. that, that was not a concern for us, whereas it was a frantic scramble for us at Bluestone. Yeah. So, for example, people who saw the Melbourne Fringe show would have noticed that there was a lot more lighting cues. So mood lighting, for yeah. example, really helped try to set the tone and, and the scenes and to really just try to emphasise. Because it is a minimalist set the lighting really does help to add to the story and to the emotions that are being displayed with midsummer at bluestone we didn't really have that luxury it was more about transitions and so forth some mood lighting for act three mm. was done which was great but 
again, I think not having as much mood lighting still helps because it's mm. more of an intimate setting. Yeah. You know, we did have an audience member comment that they loved how intimate it was. Mm. You were right up there. You were in these boys' living room. You were right up there mm. at the church, you know? So yeah, that's it, that's you're right. The audiences as well, Philip, as you were saying, yeah. it was written for a queer audience. So we did have members of the queer community coming to the Melbourne Fringe season. Obviously, at midsummer, that number, that population is higher. But the two different audiences responded differently. So mm. it was also great to see which gags landed at Melbourne yeah. Fringe versus the ones that landed at midsummer. Yeah. So the ones, the audiences at Melbourne Fringe actually laughed out loud a lot more, okay. I think, than midsummer. Whereas the midsummer audience was really more <clears> into it. <throat> were smirking or sort of chatting all of these wonderful things as well and of course when it got intense they were really involved i do want to say that for a personal highlight for me was on the friday night so friday the 19th of january stamp that in my brain bane bradshaw as michael phillips delivers a touching monologue that is filled with pain and personal history to his father graham and our audience was middle-aged to older men predominantly and Michael was telling their story. He was speaking up for them. He was standing up for mm. them and sharing their experiences. And after that, I had to say to Bane, you have done a phenomenal job up to this point as Michael. David McNamara has done a phenomenal job as Michael in Melbourne Fringe. But the timing, the delivery, the audience, the words all came together and the audience responded to that monologue like I have never seen or felt or experienced. Mm. And I will always be grateful for Bane for giving our audience a voice. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? This part, and this is something we've discussed in yeah. private before, but yeah. this show, intentional or not, yeah, it's actually very historical. Yeah. And I, I'm happy to go on that limb and on that controversy or whatever, but it, mm. it is. It's a very historical yeah. piece because, I mean, what you were saying the other day, what were you saying the other day about it being one of the first? Yeah, like for me, if we just sort of backtracked a little bit, you know, the original conception of the show was done as, oh, it might be fun to explore this. Yeah. Marriage equality was not on the cards. It was being discussed, but with the state of our government and politics at the time, it was not an option. Yeah. It was probably not even an option in my lifetime. Let's be honest. Yeah. That is how much I felt. As the show progressed, momentum kept building. Once we'd registered and it was announced at Fringe, you know, momentum was still building. When we played at Fringe, Australia was having a postal survey to discuss mm. whether we should allow marriage equality. And so it was very relevant at the time. Oh, yeah. Gasworks, Arts Park, like Fred the Alien, so many other companies were advocates of marriage equality. So, you know, Gasworks were very open about voting yes for this. So were we, clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and a lot of other companies. So there was support. So it became extraordinarily relevant, yes. even more so, because it was about something that was topical. Not intended whatsoever. Yeah, of course. You could not create and produce this play in such a quick turnaround. Yeah, no. If you wanted to. If you go, oh, look. There's going to be a postal vote. Let's put the show on. We've got a few weeks. Uh, no. It can't happen. So, I mean, the way that the world was turning for Australian politics, society and culture just happened to turn at the same time as yeah. we were developing this. Once the Melbourne Fringe show had finished, marriage equality became law. 
We had already committed to Midsummer at that stage because we had to commit early. We'd committed in like April or something. Yeah, yeah I think it was like June, July, actually. June, but July, yeah, 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 very early on to register. So much so that the Midsummer Guide essentially has a typo in it. And that's our fault <laughs> because we had still put forward our Melbourne Fringe Blurb yeah. set at a time when marriage equality is a reality. When Midsummer came on, marriage equality was a reality. Yeah. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, and I will go out on a limb. Mm. People, please correct me if I'm wrong. But I would suggest that because of the way things panned out and the way we've been producing this and put this forward, that Michael and Philip are getting married in the morning would be the first play produced to a mainstream audience about marriage equality when marriage equality is a thing. Mm. So it was a wonderful thing to have this transition that it was for Melbourne Fringe set at a utopian <laughs> world, if you like, yep, yep. an imagined future, to then its second season only a few months later. It was happening now. Yeah. So one of our final rehearsals happened on the day that same-sex couples could actually marry because after it was passed into law, you have to wait 30 days to actually yeah. marry once yeah. you yeah. set your intention. A few couples were able to find loopholes in that and had married earlier, but about a week before Midsummer mm. started and our season started, it was when people could physically get married. So, I mean, considering that there's a week yeah. <laughs> between then and when we showed, yeah, I would happily say that I think our show was the first in Australia to present a show about marriage equality when it's actually become legal. So... That's a beautiful thing, and that's a it's little gorgeous, yeah. a little historical moment that, you know, a small group of Melburnians have been a part of. Yes. Yeah, so mm. that's, that's a lovely thing. You know, Ash, there's this misconception that Michael and Philip are getting married in the morning had to go through significant changes between Melbourne Fringe and Midsummer because the law had changed. One of the things that I think is the play's strength, is that it was written imagining equality. And because it was celebrating equality, changes didn't have to be made. I think the cast were more comfortable with their characters, felt that they were able to have more fun with their characters as well, were implementing the workshops, the improvisation exercises that we went through, and really utilised that for the midsummer run. So for those who saw both seasons felt that they were watching something a little bit different. And I think that, again, is a strength to the process that we went through, that it was always fresh and that it was fun and a little unpredictable as well, whether you were seeing it for the first time or the second time. From conception to code and call, it's been a 16-month journey for me. In saying that, I have not undertaken it alone and nor would I want to. And it was only made possible through the support of some incredible human beings. So to Bane Bradshaw, Ben Campbell, Hayden Gridley, Bethany Griffiths, Ash Hall, Philip Hunting, Jeffrey Bryant-Jones, Fulia Kentamarje, Michael R. Lister, David McNamara, Anna Reardon, Kendall Richardson, Kirsten Shanahan, Ryan Stewart, to our backers, Bethany, Leslie and Malcolm Hunting, Lynn and Pete Shanahan, Frank Van Stratton, Kerry Topi, to the teams at Gasworks Arts Park, Maribyrnong City Council, the Melbourne Fringe Festival and the Midsummer Festival. And of course, to our audience, thank you. <laughs>